Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's children said, Amen. I want to read this brief paragraph from an article in a magazine about world history. It says, a foreboding cloud of black ash blocks out the sun from Europe to Asia. An outbreak of bubonic plague coincides with a piercing cold snap. Crops fail, starvation, darkness, and squalor abound. That comes from an article declaring that in the history of humankind, the year 536 was the worst year to be alive in the Northern Hemisphere. That is according to this research group who wrote the article with other history and climate specialists. One Harvard professor put it this way, it was the beginning of one of the worst periods to be alive, if not the worst year. Now the black cloud that they're talking about resulted from a massive volcanic eruption in Iceland that triggered 18 months of darkness. There was a Byzantine historian who said, for the sun gave forth its light without brightness like the moon during the whole year. And this was intensified by two more eruptions in the years 540 and 547. This cloud of ash blocked the sun, caused frigid temperatures, which caused the destruction of crops, which then resulted in starvation. And then, of course, the outbreak of bubonic plague, which wiped out somewhere between a third and a half of the population of the Eastern Roman Empire leading to an economic downturn that lasted almost 30 years. So if you were going to be a time traveler, my strong recommendation was not be that you go back to the year 536 or the years following that. And don't forget that historians settled on 536 as the worst year to be alive. But there are some other dark contenders, if you will, including 1349, when the Black Death wiped out half of Europe or 1918 when the flu killed 50 million to 100 million people around the world, mostly young adults. Some would say the last couple of years with the pandemic would have been the worst years to be around. But on a smaller geographic scale, in 722 BC, that would be a candidate for the worst year to be alive. You see, we get a look ahead when we hear from Amos of what it's going to be like. The time frame is the one after King David of the divided kingdoms, the capital and worship center of the southern kingdom of Judah was Jerusalem, and in the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital was Samaria, and the worship center was Bethel. But there were some unholy things going on in Israel, dishonest merchants, abuse of the poor, court decisions being bought and sold left and right, corruption in the priesthood, and of course, idolatry. At this point, God called Amos, a humble shepherd from the south, to travel to the north, to Bethel. He was called to confront the people there about their sin. And Amos did just that, and he talked about God holding a plumb line in the midst of Israel and the people being far out of plumb spiritually, that is far from where God wanted them to be. Amos warned that unless the people repented, they would suffer God's wrath. And not surprisingly, the words that Amos shared didn't please the audience he was speaking to. And Amaziah there, the chief priest of Bethel, stepped forward to remind Amos, Hey buddy, 
you're a foreigner here. He essentially told him that if you wanted to prophesy, you need to go home. Go home to Judah. Tell your brothers and sisters there about their sins, but leave us here in Israel and Bethel alone. Amos responded by informing Amaziah what was going to happen. We hear that the Lord had showed him a coming locust plague and a shower of fire, both of which God called off because Amos intervened on behalf of Israel. But now, with Israel's refusal to repent, Amos said that in just a few years, King Jeroboam would die by the sword. The nation would be destroyed. The people of Israel would go right into exile, all of which did happen when the capital fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., no doubt making it a pretty bad year for all the Israelites, for sure. But Amaziah didn't believe it. And Amos, while he was ordered to go home, he answered Amaziah by prophesying that the coming year of exile for Israel would also be the worst time to be alive for Amaziah, for him personally. His wife would become a prostitute. His sons and daughters would fall by the sword. This land would be, his land would be distributed to other people. And Amaziah himself would die in exile. Now that's a pretty harsh prophecy. Definitely not a good one. In any given year, there's always enough bad news out there around us to convince us that overall, things are awful. And that, at least for some people, it's the worst of years. There's also enough bad news to convince some people that we are living in the end times. But might I remind you, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus says very plainly that not even I know, but only God, the Father, knows when the end will be. Amos mentioned a locust attack, and it was common in, in his day to use the phrase, the years the locusts have eaten. And he, they, you would use that phrase to refer to wasted years, a wasted life. By this particular standard, you might remember the town of Paradise, Northern California, several years ago. They might say that the locusts had eaten the years after the wildfire hit their town. Lives lost, homes and businesses destroyed. Looking at pictures from that wildfire or any other wildfire, many could claim the years following those fires were the, the years that the locusts have eaten. But what makes for a good year? What makes for a bad one? For most of us, whether we're in the midst of a good year or maybe a locust-eaten one, it's most likely not related to national or global events, but to matters which have an impact on our own lives and those of our family members. Someone was once asked how their life was different for them based on who was president. One person that was interviewed replied to the question by describing how his life was under, and he began with Ronald Reagan and continued to go all the way up to the present. In each case, his description of his life was almost identical. His point, apparently, as he was interviewed, was that in terms of his lifestyle and pursuit of happiness, whoever was in the White House made very little difference in how he was living. That response might not have been true for immigrants or someone coming from another country who wanted to visit family here in the United States. But for many of us, especially pre-COVID, it's not the national headline type events that affect us the most. It's more likely job loss, illnesses, accidents, marriage failures, death of loved ones, localized disasters, 
a missing sense of purpose or an absence of any of that stuff that determine how we would differentiate one year in our lives from another. So how do we adjust our attitude? How do we adjust or change our behavior to, to look to create good years even when we got bad stuff going on? That is, how can we have faithful and fruitful years of living, not years that have been eaten by the locust? In other words, using the image of the plumb line, if we are out of plumb with God, how do we get back in plumb, in line with God? In dedicating our lives to serving God and each other, we have to remember this isn't about us. This is about God. John Wesley would always talk about using the means of grace, and that is which is given to us by God as how we can live and move and have our being in order to follow Christ and be more Christ-like in our lives, regardless of how a year is going. In describing the means of grace, Wesley individually said that we live this way by reading, meditating, and studying the scriptures, prayer, fasting, regularly attending worship, healthy living, sharing our faith with others. And then when we come together corporately in the family of God, we regularly share in the sacraments. We Christian conference, which is accountability to each other. And we do Bible study together. The more we individually and through our community of faith live and grow by these means of grace, the more our lives will begin to, to show forth the fruit of our faith in works of mercy. As individuals, as we accomplish using the means of grace, using and being in works of mercy, we do good works. Visit those in prison, feed the hungry, give generously to other people. And then coming together as a community of faith with those works of mercy, we seek justice. We look to end oppression and discrimination and addressing the needs of the poor. At one point, Wesley challenged all of the Methodists to end slavery. He did a lot of things like that out of his faith that others might learn from him as he lived a Christ-like life. But I know what you're thinking. How in the world am I supposed to remember all of those practices that you just read? If I can't remember them, how can I possibly ever be in alignment, be plumb with God? Well, Wesley spelled out those means of grace that God gave. He also gave us a condensed version of it. He called it the three simple rules. Do no harm, do good, Stay in love with God. Or even simpler yet, we heard it in our call to worship today. Jesus gave us the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your body and strength and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Whichever way helps you to live in line, in plumb with God, whichever way keeps you faithful and measured against that plumb line, is the way that works best for you. Like Amos, Jesus of Nazareth held his own plumb line up against the corrupt society of his day. But he didn't just hold up a plumb line as Amos did. Jesus himself was the plumb line. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was essentially saying, I'm the one against which you are to measure what it means to be loving and kind and just. 
He was saying, I don't enforce this standard with the power of armies. I invite you into accepting it, not through power at all, but through weakness. Do not measure your life against the power and standards of others, he said. Measure it instead by my standards found in my teachings, my life, my death, and the resurrection. When construction workers unroll a plumb line, they generally don't touch the line. They don't move it or manipulate it in any way. They let it hang free right next to the wall that they're working on. Looking at it is all they need to do. In the same way, that's all we need to do. Look to Jesus. He is the way, the road we are meant to walk. He's the truth, the standard by which we are to measure our efforts in being faithful. And he is the life. Yes, his life is life itself. Like in our call to worship, do this and you will live. It's not about us. It's about God through Jesus Christ and living this life and finding meaning. We know that God has a purpose for each and every one of our lives to to give glory to God and that by doing that, by doing it daily, meaning comes to our lives and we're able to share our faith with others. In the long run, we need the satisfaction that only God can give. Reaching out beyond ourselves ensures that we will live fruitful lives for the kingdom. It's not about you, it's about God, and it's about other people. It's not about money and possessions or buildings. They are the the wrong path to fruitful living in Christ's name. We have to remember to shift our focus to other people. It's hard to hold anything else in your hands when it's full of other stuff. It's hard to be confident on a larger view of life when we focus too much on ourselves. We are likely to live a more rewarding life and feel closer to Christ when we reach out beyond ourselves to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. When the motive for helping others grows out of a commitment to Christ, the meaning of life becomes ever more clear. There's an old saying, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Remember, it's about living for Christ. And I'd ask you to remember the very words of Paul while he was in prison, living for Christ. He said, for to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. I mean, that sounds like a meaningless cliche, but it wasn't for Paul. Why would we even say something like that? That living is Christ and dying is gain. Do we really understand what the meaning is behind that? I mean, we could easily argue, you know, Jesus, we never signed on for that sort of commitment. I don't really want to put it all on the line. Not too long ago, a friend of mine, a pastor in the district, chose to step away from ministry. And he had a lot of reasons, but the main one for him, the main one was that he wanted to do something more. He wanted to do more hands-on and concrete things in ministry instead of just being a pastor. Another friend of mine did something similar. He gave it all up, he and his wife, leaving ministry after several years to work for a group in the lower part of Pennsylvania called Friends and Neighbors of Pennsylvania. Through this group, they worked to help people reach their full potential and enjoy a new standard of living. Many of the people they work with and have contact with are homeless. 
and seeing some of the pictures he's posted on social media, it seems clear to me he has found a new calling in his faith. And it's not in the church. Have you ever met an unhappy, unfulfilled, and restless person who at some point said, you know what, I'm done. I'm dropping everything and I'm going to do this. And sometimes they succeeded and sometimes they didn't, but they were never sorry that they gave it all up to try. Do you know anybody who's done that for Christ? Do you think the Apostle Paul, in spite of all of the shipwrecks and floggings and prison and disease, ever felt he was going through a period of his worst years? I don't think so. You want to know the secret to avoiding those worst of years and experiencing the fruitful years for the kingdom of God? When Christ calls you, go all in. Leave it all behind. Drop whatever you're doing and go. The disciples did it for whatever reason. We'll never know for sure, but ultimately, they continued to be faithful and fruitful even though others didn't want to hear what they had to say. They went all in. God might be tapping you on the shoulder about doing something. And you might say, well, not now, Lord. You know, God can be pretty persistent in your life, and it might not turn out to be a tapping on your shoulder. But the fact is, God calls each and every one of us to go all in in this ministry of love for God and love for each other. Living is Christ, dying is gain. That is what we are to be measured by in God's kingdom. Amen.